This is a CFS report. This is about archaeology. And this is the Idiot's Guide to Archaeology with your presenter, Mark Andy Rains. Now, why archaeology? Let's ask my friend. What do you think? May I not understand why you keep digging me up? My bones sacred. You keep digging up a defender of man, and then you take away our paintings, and we do not have to complain. What do you think we do? We are more clever than you think we were. Do you not know that? Well, yes, but we got to find things out. But this is what archaeology is. This is going to be my simple explanation of what archaeology is. Oh, me, like that. What do you think? you do it now? Yes, I'll do it now. Let me think. So here we go. The Idiot's Guide to Archaeology. First, you need a place where something happened in the past could be the subject of an excavation. Second, you need an evaluation, research, including the digging of the narrow child trenches, often with machines, to establish the quality of preservation of a site and its significance. Time team digs up are often described as evaluations. If I can say it, excavation even. You're pretty thick, aren't you, Mark? Yes, I am, actually. Thank you for mentioning that. No problem. Now, the excavation part. <laughs> I said that right that time. But you clever. Me not. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, ha, ha, ha. The real McCoy, from the few days digging in the farmyard to years investigating 185 acres, 80 field archaeologists, a laboratory of 70, 27 computers on site, prize an opening of Heathrow for Terminal 5. But it's not like that. Now, what have we got? we got disturbed earth, rubble, fine beneath, found beneath the surface, indication of human activity, undisturbed geological stata at the bottom of the site, activated dirt that supposedly claims no finds, it ends up being dumped on the soil heap. Any item worthy individual attention, such as coin, piece of pottery or animal bone, is called a find. Feature, anything such as a pit, ditch or stain in the ground, typically with origin and purpose, is not immediately obvious structure, a former building erected of any kind indicated by post holes, wall foundations, etc. Layer, deposit of material that seems to have been made during one particular time. Context, perhaps the most important, something distinct in the ground, such as layer, feature, something along the lines of a grave, for example, which the context number of grave pit where that was dug, a number of the coffin and body placed there. A third, the field, the backfilling of the grave. Relationships between contexts, for example, between one grave and another, dug through, are we recorded in a matrix, which one on a large urban sites can be extremely complex. Stratigraphy, easy for you to say. No, you still think, Mark. You will not say word right. Well, I'll spell it then. Yes, better way. Okay, S-T-R-A-T-I-G-R-A-P-H-Y, Stratigraphy, the science of learning how everything on site got there, and what order, sequence, which study of fine structures and context. What do you need to go take equipment? What do you need for key personal equipment, as they call it? Well, one, a high hat. Had hat, so if you get it wrong and you, someone throws some, uh, the hammer at you, it won't hurt. Visit a high visible jacket so people will know that you're digging. High steel shirt toed boots, fully obvious. Because if you don't have them, if you drop something in your feet, you're going to say French swear words. One of your will be on, be on, be on, be on. Pointing towel. Towel, or trowel even. Not towel. A towel would be no good on the site, would it, caveman? No, you're still pretty thick. Yes, well, it is the idiot's guide, isn't it? Well, pointing trowel, 
first recorded archaeological dig in 1808. Since then, it has been an essential mark of pride, professionalism, and one-upmanship, most worn and less useful the trail, the most more prodigious, prodigious, Must get my tongue tied. Mmm, me tongue tied too. Key stages of a dig. This can be, take months. Where to dig, what to do, where to go. The initial thing is to treat it to fact known as a suspected site. Coast erosion, office development, research and quarry, untreated site, i.e. Stonehenge. But after involves planning, permit pursues, and after requires funding funds from developer or grants. Running the dig, the easy bit. Not all jobs mean they get cold, wet, bruised, grazed and dirty, but most do. Education, outreach, letting the public in, and seeing essential large digs through commercial sites can be secretive. Very secretive. Me not found for years because secretly it called Yuri area something at all. No, it wasn't me not alien, me gay man. Yes, we got that confused, didn't we? Yes, we did. Post is that exact if Exact e, um, exact cavation. Post even. You were trouble with saying words here, Mark. <coughs> the longest and most expensive stage in which the records, finds and specific scientific samples are sorted and analysed. Hopefully, used to maintain and narr- produce a narrative of the site's history that will be published. Hooray! <coughs> Why is everything old, old underground? Social structures are still standing, mostly today's paths. Lives have all disappeared, all exception items are somehow became embedded in the ground and preserved. If someone passed up down, for example, made it a grave, a pit for food, storage, a draining ditch, Sooner or later, the hole will be filled in, and a skilled archaeologist can identify the ancient evacuation and fill it, fill it. Contents and will often include deliberately buried or discarded artifacts and other remains. Hey, me yum. Yes, me yum too. Ancient land surfaces. Can be preserved by accidental burial. They can occur artificially, where you know, oil is raised and preserves the surface which it stands at Solby Hill, huge neoglyphic mound in Wiltshire. Even the grass survives, preserved by lack of oxygen, or naturally as beneath sand or mud flows at Bodsgrove, West Sussex, a massive cliff for 470. Oh, 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 years ago, buried the ground in which early humans sat around the whole hole, waiting for a large game. Me not there, that was my brother. Umpa, ah, umpi, umpa. He not very good at hunting, and why he got hit by rock. But it was the first rock contest, ha, ha, ha. Ah, no jokes, please. No, me not funny as you. You just talk, you funny. Ha, 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 very funny. Living on the ground surface left alone for long enough will sink down to 30 centimetres beneath an accumulation of earthworm casts. Charles Darwin demonstrated that this process is best selling book of his lifetime, Vegetable Mold and Earthworms, 1881. That's a book I should definitely go out and read tomorrow. I recommend that book. Recommended by Idiot's Guide to Archaeology, Keroff, CF. I'd forgotten what we're doing. Yeah. What do you say when you visit? Not what to say when you visit Dig. I can't believe you sorted out the relationship with the context 375B and the fill out of the cut 233. That took real skill. I saw you outreach presentation on YouTube. Cool, dude. I've never seen such a warm, warm trowel. Can I buy a pint? What not to say when you visit a Dig? I bought this stone I found in my garden. I'm sure it's pretty story at all. Look, as you clean the smear from your mephilos with a wet wipe, I love to be an archaeologist. It's so romantic. Are you looking for dinosaurs? Found anything yet? 
Many archaeologists are keen to share their experience with others. Encourage visits. The Council of British Archaeology promotes appreciation and care for the historical environment. The website lists evacuations, conferences, advice on how to get involved. I love the past reviews, historic properties, museums, and excavations. The British the magazines British Archaeology and Carnology regularly features excavations. Look out for portable air quality scheme meetings in your area. And yes, this has been the complete idiot's guide to archaeology. So there you are, children. Do you really want to be an archaeologist when you grow up? Have you have you learned anything today? If not, Look it up. You may find out more. Good night, people. And don't forget that trail. Ah! Hi, welcome to the Ghostman Radio Station. It's Fred saying Fred before he said to, hello, Fred. But that doesn't matter. This is a show. We don't care about things like that. And um, we're going to talk about a number of subjects. And we don't care what we're going to talk about. But he's going to start. Sorry, Fred. Go ahead, mate. share a couple of stories uh, that were kind of profound and uh, eye-opening for me. The first one was when I was in the business, I've been in business for quite some time, and by the time I was uh, 30, I had a multi-million dollar uh, production company in the film, video, and large uh, corporate event business. And a friend of mine introduced me to a psychic, which I did not believe in at all. So it was 
maybe four or five months later that I really got started on because I had other projects I was busy and to fill in a blank uh, uh, in, a, in a summer schedule, I went ahead and started this thing. And I was going to use a local radio, uh, television host to to do the thing, and uh, and he he wasn't available, but he he talked to me and he said, "Look, there's a, there's a guy here who's a, a national guy. He's semi-retired, but he's here in San Diego, and uh, he, he'd probably be perfect for this." And I said, "Who's that?" And he says, "Roland Smith, first hit." So that was pretty amazing, and then. Uh, so I called up and talked to Rollin for a minute, and when he walked in the room for our first meeting, it was like I had met my, my long-lost brother. It was just amazing, and we would go on to do a number of projects together and became very, very dear friends, and we remain dear friends to this day. And uh, his family and his wife and my wife and everybody all got along great. So there's the first hit from this psychic that I totally doubted. And I, and I didn't recall that she said that. I went, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> what is this all about? And I start getting busy on some other very large projects that I didn't expect to come in that came in. So I needed somebody to back me up as a producer. And the producer does some creative work, but they also do a lot of uh, legwork and, and fill in. So I was still directing and executive producing the project. Uh, but I needed a producer to come in, somebody who could also do some writing. So Rollins says, why don't you get Paul, Paul Brubaker? He was with NBC New York, and he did all the Jane Pauling material. And this show is more of a newsreel kind of thing uh, based on uh, aerospace, uh, aviation in space. And, of course, what, what Paul Brubaker was doing with Jane Pollard were all what I would call more fluff pieces. They weren't hard hard news or hard-edged kinds of things, and we were going to be a little more edged than that. It was a magazine show. So when I talked to him on the phone, I really liked him. He was available uh, to come out for a couple of months, so I hired him, and he came out. And I paid him enough to. He was able to um, have an apartment and everything and stay out for a couple of months to do this. So, so that was going well. Next hit, PB, Paul Brubaker. So there's the third hit on it. So we went through and did this whole thing and did a complete one-hour pilot. We brought in Andrea Naverson from uh, ABC uh, to be the female co-host with Rollin and put together a really nice show. So then we took it to the Discovery Channel. They saw it, and they called me back and said, well, you need to change the name because we're going to do something called Flightline. But we really love your show. And I said, well, I already have the copyright on it. Uh, and it's cleared, so obviously you don't have a copyright on the name. And they said, no, we don't. They said, okay, well, what we were going to do, we'll change the name, but uh, we really like your show. Can you be in, in production on this show in 90 days for the series? And I said, whoa, that's fast, but yes, I have a production company, I have people here, we can do that. We'll just add some more people, but uh, yes, and I have people that are available to come back to help me do the pilot. And the same people will be in the show. So, yeah, all the talent's attached. We can do this. She said, great, I'll be sending a contract. And I'd already submitted a budget and everything. And they it was ready to go. And then I didn't hear from them for a week. And I called in and said, I haven't heard from you guys. What's going on? And they said, oh, uh, the, she was the vice president. She said, they, uh, the uh, reception said, she no longer works here. I said, well, let's, let me talk to whoever's in charge. Got to... That person, secretary, said uh, he said that uh, he didn't need to talk to you, but to tell you that everything's been canceled. Every project that she was working on has been canceled, and that's what I found in Hollywood for all these years. That uh, and one reason I stayed away from Hollywood for the most part is that there's uh, no integrity. There's no uh, make a commitment, follow through on it. They made a commitment on behalf of the company, but that means nothing with these guys. So it never did air, and it was just amazing. Everything uh, of the important things that came out of that reading all came true. So I don't know how you feel about that, but that was pretty amazing to me. Well, but I think sometimes, as you say, you do question things, and it's good to question things. 
I never, I always have, I, every, I know I do cryptozoology and other things, uh, paranormal and that, but I have a sceptical mind as well. I don't totally believe everything. But I think sometimes you hear something and you experience these people, you think, oh yeah, there are some very genuine people out there. There's no way this person could have found this out on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, because I didn't even discuss it with my friends. Yeah, because there's certain information people can find out about you quite easily nowadays because of the internet. You know, it can, it's easy to do a cold reading quite, quite simply. So, and you're a man of intelligence, as I can see. So you would know, more or less straight away, if someone was playing you, you think, oh, this person is playing me a bit. I, I can sense this. I can pick it up. I've got this vibe. And as you say, you was listening and thinking, well, how could she know all this? She's never met me. She doesn't know me from Adam. There's no way she could have looked it up. You know, she couldn't predict no, the future. because I'd never spoken of this before. Yeah. It wasn't anywhere in writing. This was all brand new. So that, that, that's, that just is it. it is, I never mocked the ability. I think it's just a selected few who have got the real ability. Like everything in life. I think it's only the selected few who have got the absolute ability. Yes, and uh, she would, uh, I found that uh, in, in being in touch with her over the years later, that uh, as she became to know us and know me, uh, I found her to be less accurate. She was accurate on a lot of things, but uh, the more she didn't know, the more accurate she was, which was really interesting. Uh, and then th there was another story that was pretty interesting. This was after 9-11, and it's, uh, it's one of those times when somebody or something just enters your life for a moment, somebody you don't know, totally random, that really helps you emotionally and spiritually in a way that they now don't even know. And after 9-11, our company lost every job that we had, everything canceled. Ouch. And we're going, oh, my God, we're not going to make it very long here. We're going to run out of money, kind of like what companies are doing now with this coronavirus. Uh, but uh, all of our work for the next four or five months was canceled. So we're looking, how do you make payroll? How do you, you know, going to have to lay people off? Uh, how do I pay the rent? All that kind of thing. And we had a, a 30,000 square foot facility. So... We're very, very worried, and I went to lunch with my, my business partner, and we were coming back from lunch, and we were really not happy about our circumstance, feeling pretty sorry for ourselves. And we looked up, and as we came to a stoplight a week, about a block from uh, our, our office, and here is somebody multiply handicapped, really, uh, Thank you. 
that's pretty cool that that doesn't just happen in your life. I think it happens to a lot of people. We've got a slight interference on the line. If you can turn your camera off, Fred. Fred, if you turn your camera off, the the, the, the if you turn your camera off, we just go audio. It might be a bit better. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a slight issue. It's it's probably because the the water's in the way. That damn ocean it always gets in the way. Oh, I would swim over there and do a, a, a virtual, like a stand at your door and go, Hello, Fred, I'm out to view him, but it's a long swim. <laughs> Where are you right now? I am in a place called Holesworthy, which is a very small place in Devon. At the moment, our rate of coronavirus is quite low, which is quite a good thing. Because we're miles and miles away from London. London is pretty serious. But everywhere's serious, really. I mean, but I look at it this way. I think... I'll tell you what, I'm going to stop this in a moment. I'll give, I'll give you a... Right, we're back on. We had a, what we call in the, the trade a technical fault. And normally in the UK, we used to have a little little um, girl come up holding a very creepy clown on BBC One. It used to be a little test card. It used to say, Bang, the programme will resume soon. And it was a very creepy clown. You have to look it up, this picture. You'll look at the clown and go, that clown was really, really creepy. Anyway, where were we? We were talking about... Uh, we were just, yeah, we talked about uh, counting your blessings and when things uh, happen, whether it's the coronavirus or 9-11 or anything that's completely out of your control. You feel somewhat helpless. You're, you really are at the, at the mercy of whatever it's going to be. And I, what I believe, and, uh, and I've heard from others as well, uh, it's not unique to, to my experience, but if you stop and take a breath and look around, you can't change what's going on in the big world, but you can do something about how you feel about it, how you react to it, and what you do. And you can take positive measures that are the best you can do under the circumstances, and that's what we human beings do. And some behave very uh, favorably and honorably uh, and find some peace within whatever the, the fate is that uh, has, has occurred and find a, a, a path to guide them through it and others freak out. Well, I'm, I'm a great believer in... Most, most are pretty good. If you look in history, because I'm a history buff, you look at all the plagues that we have, we've had the Black Death, we've had the Spanish Flu, which wiped out millions of people. But we survived that. I think, basically, we have these things now and again to teach us a lesson, to say, look, come on, you're not invincible. It surprised me how quickly the economy blew up, though. There, was no, there doesn't seem to be anybody who's able to think, oh, I must put something away, just in case, just in case. But that just in case is always yeah. that, that mole away. I think if we learn one thing, that's one thing we ought to learn. The other thing is we've got to learn we're not invincible. Anything can get us at any time. This could happen again. We don't know. We just don't know. But yeah. I, and I, I think this, this will change the world a little bit. I don't think it will change it completely, but we will be more wary of things. seminars for production people because I'm a writer, producer, and director. I've got over 100 awards and I've run a multi-million dollar company uh, outside of Hollywood. And goals are so important. And and it really goes all the way back to Norman Vincent Peale's the first book about the 
came up with what they wanted to be. And mine was I wanted to be an audio engineer. I wanted to be a professional trumpet player. I'd start playing trumpet in the third grade. And I also wanted to be a pilot. And most of all, I wanted to be a TV director. And before I was 30, I had, uh, well, I, I turned pro as a musician at uh, 17 years of age with a rock band that was playing and making money. And by the time I was 18, I was playing at Disneyland with my own group and playing in Disney bands. Um, I, during that time to pay for school, I was doing not only the music, but I started mixing sound for the big rock bands, and I did Steppenwolf, Can't Heat, Three Dog Night, Booty Blues, on and on and on, as they came through Southern California, because at that time, uh, the big groups did not carry their own sound. They hired the big sound company in each city, so I was hooked up with a pretty big sound company, and I was the main mix guy for these guys, Argentina Turner, Three Dog Night, all of them. So I was doing that, I achieved that before I was out of college, and then uh, I directed my first television show commercially when I was 18 years old through a junior achievement program, which is a, a program for teenagers put on by local businessmen. And the sponsor of this particular uh, chapter was the local TV station. And they gave us a shot. We had to produce it. We had to sell it, sell the advertising. We had to put it together. And their technical crew, a professional technical crew, would help us. But we were, all of the uh, key staff positions were us teenagers, 18 and 19 year olds. And uh, we did it. And it was turned out to be decent. I mean, it is what it is. It was Saturday afternoon live broadcast. So I went on to become a, a real director, went through school and so forth, and produced, uh, produced huge shows and videos and IMAX films and a feature film and, and so on. But those goals were always in the back of my head. And I'd done those when I was 12 years old. And my mom, when I was about 16, 17, found the book where she had kept all my old stuff. And this is one of those things she kept. Give me the piece of paper with those goals on it. I went, holy crap. They were, they were implanted in the back of my mind, and I never lost them. And having re-looked at them, at, I guess I was 18 or 19, realized I was doing a lot of it, and it really helped me focus where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So having those goals is important, and staying positive when everything turns to crap is also important, very important, uh, to keep your, your center and keep your heart. And one of the other things that I found most important was about keeping your integrity. And I learned that from my parents, my father in particular, about your word is your bond. Don't ever forget that. And don't make promises you can't you know you can't keep. Make promises that you can keep and if something happens that you can't keep it, own up to the responsibility for it and fix it. Call it talk to the people you made the promise to. And here's what happened, here's why whatever it was, hopefully it was out of your control, but even it was in, within your control, but you, you blew it, own it and fix it. And years later, I was working with a brilliant, brilliant executive named Mike Gunn, who was the senior vice president of marketing for American Airlines. And he was telling me one time about uh, customer satisfaction, keeping customers. And he said, in the airline business, one of the things that makes people the maddest uh, is not a canceled flight because a canceled flight because of a mechanical or weather, people understand. But when you lose their bags, there's no excuse for that. You're just really screwed up. But he said, but how well you fix it after that happens can be the difference between having a loyal customer for a very long time or losing a customer. And I actually had that happen on a flight to Hawaii. They lost my bags, but the people in whatever baggage center I was talking to were so good. They said, we found your bag. It's this. It was on a wrong flight. We're sending it over. It'll be taken care of, and you'll have it by morning. And because it was the next flight out, Dallas, or wherever it was. So uh, then they followed up, called me first thing in the morning, said, the flight has arrived. Your bag is there. And uh, they 
out to you soon, but we'll let you know when it's on the truck. And then when it was on the truck, finally, they called and said it should be at your hotel in the next 20 minutes. Look for it. And then after 30 minutes went by, and we did have the, 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 the luggage, it was there, it was delivered just as promised. She called again and said, I want to make sure that you got your luggage and that everything's okay. Now, that kind of customer service and follow-up on fixing a screw-up is very key, not only in a professional life and in a business, and in any business, but it's really the same lesson can be found in your personal life, when, whether it's an interpersonal relationship or a business relationship or whatever. If you're the one that screwed up and then you fix it really, really well, that will earn you... I'll call it good karma, call it what you want, but uh, that will show that you can be a trusted person. And trust is everything. It's the hardest thing to earn and the easiest thing to lose. That's why I tell my kids. I tell my kids the same. I tell my kids the same thing. My kids are very polite. Always tell my granddad always say he used to tell me always be polite to people. He said politeness gets you a very long way. It's very true, though, isn't it? The, the, the same kind of thing. Uh, it just the squeaky wheel does get some attention, but doesn't earn you any uh, extra points. And if you just be nice, I mean, I've been in lines at the airport, and you get somebody in front of you who's just going off on the on the agent about something, and then you come up and you're really, really nice, and all of a sudden, if there's a seat in first class, they upgrade you. <laughs> We remember you, yeah. yeah. And that does yeah. I've had it happen to me. I've had lots of people help me out. Now I'm gonna mention yeah. your book now, Advocate for the Audience. And you got here something along the lines, just as you did this, just how you did you did you do it? Finding new clients, funders, getting so many big budget assignments nationwide, earn over a hundred major awards, keep huge multinational. Clients coming back for over 30 years in a row, a path to long-term success for both the executives, funders and buyers of the creative media and those who work creating the videos, events of all kinds of non-broadcast and broadcast projects are explained in detail. Lots of real case study experiences, success and failures revealed and proven techniques explained with examples. See how to separate yourself from the crowd, build your brand and make a good living at it. Outside of Hollywood. <laughs> Thank you. That's, I wrote the book, and uh, it took me three years to write the book. It was after I quote unquote retired. And uh, I'll tell you what, in writing that book, I, I discovered that I had honed the, uh, the art of per cat, per quick. I had honed procrastination into a fine art. <laughs> it, was, it was one of the harder things I've ever done because I've never sat down and looked at, I just did things because I instinctively was doing them, and then I went back and analyzed it and looked at, well, how did you keep these giant companies for all these years, and how did you, how did you work this and do this? And I looked at all these different aspects of it, and I said, you know something, I can do something for the people coming up, because I had a lot of really big-time pros along the way help me. Uh, build my career, even as a young guy, and when I would be, do a shoot on a Hollywood stage, I would make sure I had the best guys up there, and I would empower them. I'd, I'd tell them, look, I'm the new, new young director, which means that I don't know as much as I think I know, but you guys are the pros, and I'm looking at you to not let me screw up. Here's what we're trying to do, but if you see me doing something that could be done better, you, you have my permission. Matter of fact, I'm asking you, stop the production, come over to me and say, no, 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 do it this way. And occasionally they would. And it made the project better, it made me better, and I wanted to give back some of that to the young people coming up today because it's a very competitive business. So that's that's what the book is about. And it is available, uh, and I ship. Uh, and I didn't put it on Amazon because they wanted to triple the price that I'm selling it for. And uh, I've got the, the uh, 
they can get it at my website, which is www.fredashman.com, A-S-H-M-A-N-F-R-E-D-Ashman.com, all one word. And uh, so that's, that's one of the things that I'm doing to put that out there. And here I am in quote-unquote retirement, and uh, a year and a half ago I directed 10 episodes of a broadcast series. I'm under contract now to uh, develop and uh, hopefully get on the air uh, and then come up with a lot of money to let me do it. As the, They've hired me as their executive producer. They want me to direct the pilot in the first four uh, shows of the series for a new one-hour uh, variety show, and it's Latin-based uh, uh, musical variety. Uh, with a, a big set, and uh, it's kind of like what you would see on, I think you have the British version, and we have the American version of The Voice. Uh, that kind of production value, but it's definitely a Spanish, English, Latin flavor, and a lot more spectacle involved. So they're having, I'm, I'm working on that. As a matter of fact, I was working on it this morning before our call, um, putting it together and starting to build the team to do a pilot uh, late this year. So I'm under contract for that, but I'm also uh, directing uh, one episode. It's a second episode of a new drama series uh, that I've been hired to direct. So that's my retirement. So I'm having fun. That's the main really thing, isn't it? That I was able that's to be on your, your show. I'm looking at your pictures of the of some of the artists you work with. I, I, I recognise, well, the one I most recognise is James Gardner, obviously. Rock for Fowls. I used to watch that religiously over there. They used to have a series of detective programs. Potter Jelly, Kojak, Watchford Fowls, Columbo, Cannon. See, I'm going back to some bleak. I'm going to actually yeah, years there. Very sensible man, yeah, very sensible man. Yeah, yeah, I remember he, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know he was in lots and lots of things. Wasn't he in um, Dynasty? Well, we used to call it Dynasty over here. I know it's called Dynasty, but... Dynasty, yes. Yeah, we used to call it Dynasty because everyone used to do... Everyone used to die in it. Fair enough. <laughs> 
because he was in. And when we finished a recording, I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll do a playback. You can hear it and see what you think. And he says, what I think doesn't matter. You're the director. If you're happy, I'm happy. So you go ahead and listen to everything. And if you need me to redo something, tell me what you want different, and I'll do it. Uh, and he was really nice, but he did not listen to his own stuff back, uh, which was an interesting quirk. But uh, he did a great job. I mean, I don't think I could, did more than three takes on any on any of his lines. He was terrific. I know your little picture of the other helicopter that you got on your site. Do you fly a helicopter? Uh, I don't fly helicopters. Uh, I, I actually took a lesson. Uh, I have uh, almost, well, I got 4,600 hours as pilot command in airplanes. I've owned four airplanes along the way and uh, flown all over the place. But I also have directed out of helicopters a lot. So I thought, um. well, I better understand a little bit more how they work and maybe... I took a lesson in a jet ranger with one of the top, top pilots who does film work. And so I was able to take it off. You know, we did a little ground school, and then we went out. I was able to take off and fly around and, and maneuver it without, a, without really a problem. I probably wasn't the smoothest, but I, it was, I was safe, and I was okay. And he brought, had me bring it around and make the approach into the helipad to land. And he said, now we're going to hover. And he's talking me through it, and I came right down and slowed down and got right into the hover. And I was able to hold the hover for about three seconds before I started losing control. <laughs> and he takes the controls and has it stabilized instantly, and he starts to laugh. He says, here, try it again. And he's got it's all stable. He says, don't over-control it. And I started, you know, within about three seconds, I started losing it again. We did that about three or four times, and then he went ahead and, and landed. And... Uh, and he said, don't worry, you fixed wing guys take about six to eight hours of practice before you can hover, and then you're okay. And, and normal guys coming in who don't have any experience take two or three hours more. But it's, it's, it's a learned thing. It's a motor skill thing uh, in muscle memory. So you, you can get it, but it takes that kind of time. And, in, you know, it's three or four hundred dollars an hour I didn't want to do the practice time because I didn't want to be a helicopter pilot they're too expensive <laughs> but because uh, I let the pros do that kind of work but I did do uh, a lot of uh, flying from the right seat in jets wow. uh, shooting in IMAX and in 35 millimeter of air-to-air work for American Airlines and other airlines and I also did Learjet uh, we did work for uh, Galaxy Aerospace which is now uh, the Gulfstream 100 and uh, for Dassault Falcon jets. So I've done a lot of air-to-air work, uh, flying co-pilot and directing with a really super experienced uh, captain who does the real close formation work. And I mean, we get close. There was one time we were overlapping wings on another Learjet uh, for the introduction of the Learjet 45. Uh, That is real precision flying and we make real sure that uh, the pilot on the other, in the plane we're uh, taking pictures of is just as good. You've got to have people with uh, formation experience. And we did. Uh, it was so much fun. So much fun. I never really told my insurance guy about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking at some of your shows on your site. It, it's quite, I mean, people say, oh, you, but they don't realize how much goes into a, just a simple commercial people think oh it's just a three minute film but it's not really a three minute film it can take three weeks just to do that three minute film yes it, uh, you know for every yeah. hour on set you probably put in uh, multiple days worth of planning depending on you know what the project is uh, the project I'm planning for this pilot is actually well, it stalled for a year while I was waiting for them to go get the money, more money. Uh, they hired me right at first to develop the concept. We did that, and then it's gone on to the next phase. But it, it's it's probably a year to a year and a half's work to put it together and assemble the team and get all the creative and the thinking worked out. And then, even once you get into it, you find that some of your planning was faulty. Uh, you'll find that, well... We thought that would be so cool, and it's not, so we're going to fix it. So that's part of the art 
And, and as I tell a lot of the uh, young people coming up, and even some of the people who are established, is don't ever forget it's team art. And you need to surround yourself with experts in other areas of the field who are better than you. Uh, you're, if you're the producer or director, fine, you know what you want to do, you know what you, how you want to, you, you know sort of how you want to get it done, but you know what the end result should be, and then you assemble these other people to do it, because it is team art. So, you got dogs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got little Jack Russell. She does the same. <laughs> it's because noise is carrying at the moment. It's like you go out, go. You can hear the birds, and it's like, whoa. This is like the horror films I always watched as a kid. I'm living the horror film I always watched as a kid. <laughs> uh, I have finally uh, one last thing that is kind of an uh, interesting aside, and it goes to the idea of trust and integrity, which are the core of everything. Uh, and it's really one of the, it's probably the biggest reason, we're, we're very good at what we do, but there's a lot of people who are good at what they do. But if you have the trust of people and you can show them that you have their best interests at heart, and this goes to what uh, a CEO told me very early in my career, uh, and that was, if you're making a deal, you should be able to get up and walk to the other side of the table when you're discussing the terms. And you should be able to take their position and, and sit in their chair, and they should be able to sit in your chair, and you can both say, oh, this is a fair deal. And when I was doing my, uh, my feature film, I got uh, some people that uh, had never, ever helped finance a feature film before, and they became sponsors, which means they gave me the money upfront cash, seven figures each, up front in cash before a script was written based on my presentation to them and then I had to write a contract for them and I went to an entertainment lawyer in LA because it's a feature film and told him I said I want you to write this contract but I want you to represent them everybody it's as much as me I want a contract that they look at and they go oh my god this guy took care of us and took care of himself he says well look you know, I, I'm supposed to represent you to get your best deal. I said, I don't want that. That's a win. Uh, one guy gets a better deal than the other. I said, I want, uh, here's all the terms. We've already worked out the basic terms. I need to put it in legalese, but I need all the wherefores and all of the, all the little things that I wouldn't know about to put in there to protect them and their copyrights and everything else because we're going to use their logos, uh, you know, as, as part of the credits and all that. So long story short was, he did it, and the companies you probably recognize, Coca-Cola, MasterCard International, American Airlines, and Walmart, and McDonald's. And the day that the Walmart contract was going to be signed, well, I did, excuse me, let me back up. The day that the McDonald's contract was going to be signed, I got a call from the vice president who had approved it, and everything was approved. It was done. They were ready to write a check. And he called and he said, well, I've got bad news. Uh, he said, bad news for me and bad news for you. He said, the new president just came in and fired nearly all the vice presidents and canceled all of our projects. Sounds like the Discovery Channel. <laughs> and, uh, so you're, you're not going to have McDonald's as a sponsor. And so that went away. And then a few days later, I got a call from the head of legal at Walmart. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this is another thing. There's a problem. What's going on? And uh, this is the, the main guy. And this project is, you know, it's seven figures, but it's not huge seven figures. And this is the guy that handled the giant stuff for Walmart. And he called personally. I'm going, uh-oh, something's wrong. So I took the call, and he introduced himself, and I said, what's wrong? He says, nothing. That's why I'm calling you. He says, in my 30 years in this business, I have never seen a contract that was written so well that not only protected you and represented all of the terms that we all agreed to, but it protected us equally as well. 
Sometimes you've got to do that, ain't you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now I see you got your fan of model trains. I thought you might have Rod Stewart come round and help you. I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. I thought you might have to see a Rod Stewart coming round to come and help you. As always, you so run out when you do these shows. It's like, oh my god, you've got so much time and you never have enough time to talk about things. But we think we cover most of the things <laughs> of what you talk about. Anyway, um, I like to normally do like a unique sign off. So, what would your unique sign off be to the world we are presently in? Mine for you. Somewhere in the future, 
Fred is going to do a, 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 a little directory thing called self-isolation, how we survived it. And he's going to have various people coming on with phone messages saying, I survived by doing a podcast with Mark on the Ghostman radio station. I survived by reading a book. But basically, we're all, at the moment, we're all together. And I've had a great chat. I like the, I'm going to end with this little quote. Creating means meaning through film and performance. That's ability to impact on the audience. There's nothing more thrilling. I think there's more than that worth that describes the person that I have been talking to. Excellent. Right, I just.